Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. At Evidence Live 2016, I had the chance to sit down with Ivan Aransky, co-founder of Retraction Watch and Global Editorial Director at MedPage Today. Ivan used his session at Evidence Live to talk about research fraud, and that's what this interview is about. Retraction Watch has a leaderboard of shame, ranking research fraudsters by the number of retractions that they have. The demographics are interesting. The highest place goes to Yoshitaka Fuji with 183 retractions. Now, Fuji worked in basic science, but clinical researchers are well represented in that list. Ivan and I discussed which areas of science are most affected by this research fraud. And what is it that's motivating these researchers to risk their careers by fabricating data? So Ivan, you took us through some kind of underlying data uh, about retractions um, at Evidence Live here. And it looks like the rate, not just the, the, the number, but the rate of retractions is increasing, um, which you think is a good thing. Why, why is that? Uh, the rate of retractions definitely is increasing. It's outpacing the rate of increase in published papers, and that's been true really at least since 2000, uh, probably before that, but we haven't really looked at it. It's a good thing because what seems to be clear is that this is all the result of more scrutiny of the scientific literature, whether it's by robots meaning plagiarism detection software, or by just more eyeballs, human eyeballs, on screens. Because so many of these papers now, the vast majority of them, in fact, are online. So what this means is that we are seeing, you know, a cleansing of the scientific literature. Now, it's not a complete cleansing of the scientific literature, mm. but we are finding many more issues in papers. Uh, not everyone is ready to accept that or deal with it or handle it appropriately, but we're starting to see a lot of that, and, and that's a good thing. It's the same as if you start screening for a particular disease. Uh, you're going to find a lot more cases of it at the beginning, mm -hmm. and then it'll sort of plateau at some point because you will you will found the quote-unquote real, you know, sort of natural occurrence of that disease. We're still in the pre- plateau phase, it appears, in terms of retractions. Mm. Um, and given that, I mean, were you surprised you've been doing this for a while about the way, just the increase in, in, in how this is going? So, uh, Adam, Marcus, and I co-founded Retraction Watch in August 2010, so uh, not quite six years ago now, as we sit here. And we knew that there were good stories behind retractions. Adam, in particular, had broken some really big stories in retractions. And we also knew that they weren't terribly transparent. And those are the two things that motivated us to start it. But Adam was quoted early on saying, yeah, we thought we would post you know, a few times a month, something like that, or our mothers would read it. We'd <laughs> sort of have some fun doing it. We didn't know, and we could claim now, if we wanted to be revisionists or see sort of seem to be smarter than we actually are. We didn't know that we were in the middle of this boom in retractions. So it did surprise us. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of researchers always say, oh, this finding surprised me. And I, I always sort of look at that as a little 
maybe a little cynically as that's to sort of gin up interest. Uh, th- the truth is we had no idea how many attractions there were and didn't launch this because we saw some great rise. Uh, it does turn out, though, the year we launched was a year that had 10 times as many attractions as a decade prior. Mm. So there, there's clearly something happening. Yeah. And, I mean, you have your top 10 ranking of, of the number of people who, uh, number of retractions per person, um, which has a, a particular researcher way out in front. Um, I'm just wondering, how, how long is the tail of that? I mean, does it seem like a lot of people are just doing a little bit, um, as opposed to these sort of big blockbuster fraudulent researchers? Hmm. So, overall prevalence, which doesn't necessarily tell you anything, but overall prevalence of retractions is something like 0.02% of papers. Mm. Um, now, there are clearly recidivists, so the top retraction holder, record holder on on our list has 183 retractions, which is actually a decent percentage of the number of retractions ever. Mm-hmm. The number of retractions ever is somewhere between five and 7,000, depending where you look. And so, so yeah. you know, significant. it's significant. It's a few percent of that. Uh, on the other hand, as you point out, most people never retract a paper. And I don't have data for to support this, but my sense is, from our reporting, that most people who retract a paper, that's the only one they retract. Now, maybe that's because they left science, maybe because it's an honest error that they learned from and mm. will never you know, commit again. Uh, but it's also true that the numbers are simply going up overall. So if you were to do the top 10 or the top 30 the way we do, if you were to have done that five years ago or certainly 10 years ago, most of the people in the top 10 wouldn't be there. So clearly this has been having an effect. And so it just sort of a rising tide is, is lifting all boats mm. and perhaps covering up parts of the shore that were sandy before. Yeah. With regard to that, there, there were two, the two top people are in anesthetics. Um, and as you said uh, in your talk, that makes you feel good about anesthetics because yeah. there's scrutiny there. I'm wondering, are there any other patterns like that? Are you, are you seeing anything about specialties or, or disciplines or you know whatever it happens to be where it seems like the 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 community is, is taking this seriously is looking at it is is out to to sort out that literature particularly so <clears throat> there are a couple different what i would think of as optimistic trends or positive trends so anesthesiology is one where there are clearly people in anesthesiology, particularly one person, who Steve Schaefer, who is the editor of one of the major journals there, and he's on our board of directors in, in terms of full disclosure. But there's other fields, and, and many of them are outside of medicine where we see this. So psychology has been going through a particular soul-searching time. Uh, some of this was prompted by actual fraud. Uh, Diedrich Staple from the Netherlands, who also on our leader board, has 58 retractions. <laughs> Uh, made up data for all of them, all of those. Uh, we see, but in fact, in in psychology, a lot of it really is also prompted by 
what some people are calling, uh, we don't love this word, but or this phrase, but reproducibility crisis, and, and which is different from retractions and different from fraud and misconduct. So psychology is one area. Um, you know, economics is actually starting, you know, well outside of clinical medicine, of course, but economics is starting to look at what their sort of rates of reproducibility are and getting concerned about that. So these are all very interesting, you know, good trends. And what happens is that a lot of people go along thinking, well, fraud, retractions, those are very, very rare events. And they, and they overall, that's true. But then all of a sudden it happens to them, or it happens at a journal that they edit. Uh, Farrakh Fang, who's another member of our board of directors, he's a microbiologist at uh, University of Washington, and he had that experience where he's the editor of a journal, the American Society of Microbiology Journal, uh, Infection and Immunity. And, you know, he thought, okay, retractions will happen, I'll have to deal with them. But then there was one author who published a lot in his journal and in a lot of other journals, and who has now had more than 30 retractions. And all of a sudden, for Farrakh, this was sort of this moment. Mm. He said, you know, uh, there's something happening here. And then he's dedicated a, a significant portion of his career now to studying the phenomenon and really coming up with a lot of really interesting, you know, data and, and findings and, and sort of correlations that we didn't know happened before. Mm. And so for many people, there's this sort of moment that happens. Uh, I suppose for me and Adam, it was when Adam was reporting, this is before Retraction Watch, on case of Scott Rubin, another anesthesiologist <laughs> who had to retract more than 20 papers because he made up all of the data. You know, fraud in a, in a particular study, in RCT, that might seem like it's fairly small, but the, the downstream effects of that, that goes into a systematic review, might go into a meta-analysis, might end up in some guidelines, might end up in some legislation or something, maybe ultimately. Um, and then that paper is retracted. And it, it doesn't seem like there's, we have yet tackled those downstream effects and how to really, you know, a retraction should be the first, the start of a process as opposed to the, the end of it almost. What do you think about you right, know, how uh, we're doing there? You know, you, you could look at the sort of butterfly flapping its wings uh, and, and creating a hurricane somewhere. Um, and actually, what we tend to see is even further upstream uh, than, than your question suggests, which is the basic science that underpins a phase one trial uh, or that underpins any clinical trial. That turns out to be you know, fraudulent or retracted for some other reason. We really haven't, as I think a scientific community, I, I would say the scientific community has not dealt with how to deal with that, you know, figured out how to deal with that. We've seen some cases where people go out of their way you know, retract the paper just because of one figure in some other paper that they referred to, and then others who say, oh, well, it didn't affect the results. You know, our favorite sort of, when I say favorite, I mean the most troubling uh, element of a lot of retraction notices, and this is very common, is a sentence at the end that says, but none of this affected the, you know, results, or this has been replicated elsewhere. And it sort of doesn't count. I mean, you, you and so, Sometimes the response we get is, well, yes, that study was retracted, that was fraudulent, but these other studies have, you know, replicated the results or reproduced the findings, and so therefore, it's fine. And, and that may be true, but it, it's not usually tested in a very rigorous way. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things we're doing is creating this database that we 
hope will be used both upstream and downstream so that if you find out that a paper you had cited years ago even was retracted you can decide what to do with it and I'm not sure I know what the answer is all the time uh, but there is at least one case in recent memory where uh, retracted studies fraudulent retracted studies had made their way into a fairly significant uh, systematic review that had to be revised because the balance of evidence actually shifted once those studies were excluded. Mm -hmm. And so, <coughs> you know, I think researchers are aware of this, but it's one of those things where, uh, the, well, the horse is out, you know, the horse is gone, the barn door is now being closed, and Again, no one really wants to deal with it. Mm. I finished that systematic review. Really? Do I really have to do this? Well, can't we wait until the next one is reviewed, you know, is sort of revised anyway? And maybe you can. Um, you know, the question is, is a series of fraudulent results or the sort of re revelation that some of your results are fraudulent, is that uh, more pressing than simply the passage of time and other research coming out about the area that would require a revision anyway. I, I would leave that to the epidemiologists mm -hmm. and the, and you know, the meta-analysts, uh, but it is a question we have to answer. It seems like a lot of this is being powered by individuals who are committed, that, you know, um, sort of get a, a zeal about it as opposed to sort of at the institutional level. I mean, and, and our editor, Fiona, said, you know, um, we as a journal have trouble with this because if someone reports to us, we rely on an institution, you know, with the mechanism of science to, to try and correct this, which doesn't seem up to the, the job at the moment. I mean, look, any field where there's a profession that wants to police itself, uh, that's a good thing, and in fact, that's one of the definitions of profession and professionalism. Uh, but the problem is that none of us as professionals, and I would certainly put journalists in this category, that's what I do for a living, are really capable of properly policing ourselves. It uh, doesn't mean we're all crooks. It means that we all have tendencies. It means that there are always outliers that we just don't know what to do with. Mm. And there's a lot of controversy over whether or not we should allow uh, external forces or external bodies to have more control. Uh, I would say that Adam and I are of the opinion that we need that. Now, there's always a pendulum and you need to watch these things. But if you just compare the way different countries handle research misconduct, uh, in the U.S. we have something called the Office of Research Integrity, which is unique, actually, among any country there no other countries have anything exactly like that mm -hmm. with that kind of authority and a lot of people in the US say the ORI doesn't have enough authority we happen to think it should have more but when you compare it to any other country there is no other body like that and the question is is that best or is it best left to scientists I with all due respect to scientists, most of whom, the vast majority of whom, I think are honest people who are trying to pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake and, for, and to do the right thing. We even have a category on our website called doing the right thing where we try and highlight these mm -hmm. sorts of, this, sorts of this sort of behavior. It, it just, it's too difficult. There are too many conflicts. It's too difficult to challenge 
authority figures and powerful people in your own profession. So I do think we need some sort of oversight. Doesn't mean all of it has to be done, but having seen every single player in this little microcosm of the world that, that Adam and I report on, uh, journals, institutions, certainly individuals, uh, nonprofits, no one has an interest in this. And, and I'm, that's too broad, but on balance, no one has an incentive to mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. And until we fix that incentive structure, which is a bigger problem in terms of science, it's difficult to see how we're going to tackle this appropriately. Uh, or at the level that I think science would want so that it can have the kind of trust that it wants to enjoy, regardless of who's paying for the research. Mm. There is something about science, and I cherish this, that is about you know seeking the truth, seeking knowledge, uh, absent any sort of incentive or any sort of human frailty, if you will. And that's never going to be 100%. That's still the ideal. But the closer we can get to that, I think the more trust science will have. And that could require outside intervention. Hmm. I suppose leading on from that, um, we were talking about incentives and uh, the culture really is, hmm. you know, why do people commit fraud? Uh, you've said that the majority of retractions are due to fraudulent, it's not, it's not down to honest mistakes. Um, and I think interestingly, uh, you said that um, there's only two women in the top 30, and that it's been quantified somewhere that men are nine times as likely to commit fraud as, as women. So are you willing to speculate on, on what it is that's, that's causing you know, scientific fraud? money, power, prestige, what's going on? Um, I don't like to speculate, uh, and it would be particularly ironic if I speculated completely at a meeting like this one, <laughs> uh, Evidence Indeed. Live. Um, that being said, I think that there are inferences you can draw from the available evidence. Um, one particular bit of that evidence is when you talk to, and the way we do when we're reporting and the way others have done on a more formal basis, when you talk to researchers about why they did something or why they felt the need to do something, why they felt pressure, it's obvious that there's a pressure to publish, right? The publisher perish. It, lots goes into that. In order to publish, you need to get grants. In order to get grants, you need to have a position. Uh, in order to have job security, you need to have tenure. All of these things contribute so that when you talk to researchers, particularly those who are not necessarily the senior uh, people in a lab or in a clinical research in a trial, uh, but people who are maybe postdocs, graduate students, research technicians, you don't have to come out and say, as a principal investigator, I really need these data to look this way. It's understood. These are smart people. They're trained. They understand what it takes to get into the high impact factor journals that determine everybody's career and they will somehow make that happen. Even if it's unconscious, even if it's, well, let me just repeat the experiment until I get the result I want. And so it's hard to, although it's very difficult to really prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, it's also difficult to deny that there's some pressure to publish and to come up with results that somebody will want to publish. 
So again, it's speculation to sort of you know reach into people's minds and to try and and infer motives, motivations, but it's very clear that the system we have and the incentives we have are contributing to the problems, not just in fraud and misconduct, but in terms of reproducibility. Mm. Yeah, and it seems like all of those levers, which is all of the pressures in, in one direction. Um, and do you feel like there is something pushing back against that that's, that's helping with our reproducibility, you know, whatever it is about cleaning up the evidence base? I think we're starting to see some interesting things, and it, most of them are basically experiments at this point. One of the things that we've seen is that now that we have a bit of history with clinicaltrials.gov and other databases, other registries, I should say, whereas basic science used to look at clinical trials as sort of less scientific, if you will. Mm -hmm. oh, you're in this sort of box. It's, it's not as interesting. It's, it's not blue sky research. Uh, you sort of know exactly in an almost binary way what you're going to find. You know, the endpoint will go this way or that way. They're starting to realize that the controls, I don't mean experimental controls, but I just mean the sort of checks and balances, checks and balances of clinical trials maybe a model for the way preclinical research and, and basic science in general is done. Now, can you pre-register every experiment you do? Yeah, probably not, because you do want to have to allow for some serendipity and just discovery. I, I went to the uh, Alexander Fleming uh, Museum. I happened to walk by it on the way to Paddington yesterday. And I mean, there's an example of pure serendipity, really. Uh, although it could also be cast as an example of pure sloppiness uh, <laughs> you know, leading Indeed. to yeah. serendipity, but it is what it is. Um, point being that, you know, not every, it's not going to be directly transferable. There aren't exact parallels, but could something like pre-registration work? Um, you know, could the movement to publish null results and negative results uh, not too many journals are actually behind that yet. And, and until they do get behind it, it's going to be difficult. One very promising thing, which did surprise me uh, in a very pleasant way, is what's happening in the U.S. Um, many things about what's happening in the U.S. surprised me in a horrible <laughs> way. But one particular area, which is that this new cancer moonshot, which on the face of it, this is the attempt by, you know, the Obama administration really wants to push a tremendous amount of funding into cancer research. Now, we've tried the war on cancer, we've tried all sorts of things, and I'm, I'm probably deeply cynical about most mm -hmm. of these efforts, and I'm not crazy about the term moonshot. It, it implies that really just it takes a bunch of clever physics and engineering, which is what it took to get to the moon, as remarkable as that was, and cancer is much more difficult than that, much more complicated than that. But one of the things that Vice President Joe Biden has been talking about at every sort of you know campaign stop, if you will, for this, and he's really campaigning for this now, is reproducibility. It's remarkable. He's talking about data sharing. He's talking about open data. He's talking about all these things. It's as if someone, and it may have been him, although it may have 
probably was his staff, uh, have clearly been reading mm -hmm. something that somebody at this conference or lots of us at this conference have been writing about. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they've been reading, you know, John Inides and uh, Brian Nosek, who's yeah. at the Center for Open Science, and all of these experts on reproducibility. So that's reassuring and will still require more effort because it requires incentives. So if, if Pre Vice President Biden and President Obama want to do that, and really push for that, they will probably need to think about how the funding from NIH will work, you know, from National Cancer Institute, one of the NIH uh, institutes, because then you, you would need to actually incentivize all of this. Because once researchers, just like anyone else, once researchers realize there is funding to do a certain thing, mm -hmm. all of a sudden they will start doing that certain thing. And if there is funding earmarked for reproducibility studies or replications, specifically, which is something Adam and I have actually argued for, then all of a sudden lots of people want to do replications because it means they bring in grants and their institutions love it, and they'll get to publish them. That's a little bit trickier, but mm. these are all some positive signs. And at the same time, we've heard noises from industry about, mm -hmm. you know, taking back a, a portion of funding if it turns out oh, that yeah. that stuff is... Uh, not so, reproducible. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very interesting also, especially sitting here where, of course, one of the big issues is conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. And, and there's, in, industry studies are often criticized, and industry itself is often criticized for practices. And, and they deserve the vast majority of that, if not all of it. <laughs> but they also deserve credit in this particular instance for really ringing a bell, a siren, uh, on reproducibility. Uh, it was, as I'm sure you know, a paper in 2012 in Nature, which looked at preclinical cancer research and said, you know, only six out of 53 papers' findings mm -hmm. could be replicated, mm -hmm. could be reproduced when they attempted it. Now, and that's also been subject to question because they didn't say which 53 it was, <laughs> so you could, you could sort of make a meta argument about the reproducibility of that study. <laughs> but others have shown <laughs> me, similar things. Uh, similar findings. Um, and most recently, of course, there was uh, someone from uh, Merck, I believe it was, who said, what about a money-back guarantee? Yeah. What if if the studies don't replicate, then the universities, who are the ones who license the findings and, and the intellectual property, have to pay back the amount of money or we won't make any more milestone payments or what have you. I, that's interesting. I think more provocative than useful. Uh, it'll make people think about it. But, in fact, we want to reward not just positive findings, because if anything, that'll make it worse. Because then you'll sort of only license out the positive findings and not tell anyone about the ones that didn't quite work out. But again, as a, as a sort of thought piece, as a ex thought experiment, I think it's very interesting. So industry has a vested interest in getting drugs to market. We know that. It's not, not a secret. And Part of that needs to be, for example, the safety features, or I should say the safety profile of a particular drug. And so if that is as well highlighted, that should be counted. If we're going to, say, do a money-back guarantee, then part of that should be, did you actually inform us of all of the potential side effects that you've seen from these mm, studies? Yeah, well, then you've actually satisfied the money-back guarantee part because you've told them what the data were and they they you know were in concert 
If you only focus on the effectiveness and the positive findings on effectiveness, then yes, you're going to continue to have issues. Mm. And um, if uh, listeners will forgive us for being a bit navel gazing, um, what you know? Let's talk about uh, journals because that is part of the issue here. And I know from the inside that. It's something that we wrangle and we're tackling and it's difficult. How are we doing, for a start? Do you think, uh, what else should we be doing? Well, I think, in general, journals are not really fulfilling their role. If part of their role is to uh, vet research and look at it and be willing to correct it when it turns out to be wrong. So, uh, journals like to talk a lot about the power of peer review and how important peer review is. In fact, they tell us journalists that we shouldn't write about anything before it's peer reviewed. Um, and yet, every time there's a retraction, they say, well, you know, there was no way for peer reviewers to have found that. Yeah. yeah we find that argument, um, you know, let's just call it amusing. Uh, so, if you continue to treat, if journals continue to treat a particular study, particular articles as as the gospel, as you know, from coming on high, and therefore immutable. We're going to continue to have this issue. Uh, journals don't have a particular incentive to act. Uh, you know, when I'm being even more cynical than I usually am, which is a pretty high bar, <laughs> I look at how long retractions take. Now, this has been changing over time. It's happening more quickly uh, nowadays, but. You know, there's some reasonable data to suggest that retractions take about three years on average. Well, if a retraction takes about three years on average, the amount of time that a that citations count for impact factor is two years. So if you want to limit the damage from any potential study that will maybe get cited less and therefore not increase your impact factor as much, then you would wait at least two years, which they happen to be doing. Now, I will be clear that this, that what this doesn't tell you is time from complaint or allegation to retraction. That's a different, that's actually the more important figure here. But, and again, I'm being cynical, but there's, there's really no incentive for anyone to do it. Plus, you have lawyers who, in particular parts of the world, are even more involved in this process and have more say. Uh, in the U.S., we've seen some very promising trends when it comes to legal threats. Mm. So there are journals that have been sued. Publishers have been sued. A university was sued. Uh, Harvard was sued. And the American Diabetes Association was sued in different cases because of the appearance of expressions of concern. And judges just laughed. I mean, you, you can see them laughing when you read these their, their findings, their, their decisions, because they're saying... You're asking us to issue an injunction against an expression of concern or even a retraction. Uh, that's a violation of, in the U.S., we have the First Amendment, mm -hmm. which, sorry, that, that's funny that you think we should do that, but we won't. Uh, but I, I recognize very well that in the rest of the world, that's not the case. Um, the U.K., where we're sitting now, has had some libel reform, but not as much as I would like. Uh, Germany has some privacy laws that tend to really, in my mind, infringe on what I would think of as First Amendment, sort of freedom of, of speech, freedom of uh, the press uh, rights. So 
that's a, a sort of a mixed picture, as, as most are. Um, but if we can find a way to not so much get lawyers out of the out of out of science, I, I, they're always going to be there, and I think in many times they're a good thing, and there are lawyers who defend the right things in science. Um, but defang uh, the ability of the legal system to really confuse the issue rather than clarify the issue, um, then that, that could help journals. You know, Nature was very clear about this. They were actually very forthright about this. A couple of years ago, they wrote an editorial saying, you know, one of the reasons you see uh, mealy-mouthed retraction notices that take a long time is lawyers were constantly being sent letters and, you know, being threatened with legal action. Um, and so that's, that's something we need to look at.